Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Time. The rest of you, I'll invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. I will announce to you that my sermon is going to be a lot different than what you're used to. I normally do an exposition through a passage of Scripture, and I did that last week. Today is going to be more about dealing with objections. It's a little bit more similar to my podcast that I do. I don't know if you guys know I have a podcast in addition to the church ministry called Understanding Christianity, and this is probably more similar to what I'd be doing on that as opposed to an expository sermon. But I'm glad you came back this morning to see what the Lord has to say. In 2011, Harvard University and Notre Dame, they conducted a Faith Matters survey. And they surveyed over 2,600 Americans. And something very interesting and very telling came out of this survey. An increasing and growing number of Southern Baptist women have no real problem with female pastors. They asked respondents how much they agreed with the following statement. Here was the statement. Women should be allowed to be priests or clergy in my house of worship. And 73% of female Southern Baptist women said yes. They favored a woman in the pulpit compared to just 58% of Southern Baptist men. Now, Suppose the survey's accurate. There's always issues with surveys. It's over 11 years old, 12 years old. It's probably higher now. If this is true, then half of Southern Baptists don't see any problem with women serving as pastors or preaching on Sunday mornings. Now, this is an alarming statistic if it's true. And it probably addresses why our denomination is quickly moving to embrace female pastors. We had a town hall meeting earlier this morning to discuss some of those issues. And so how do we reach this point where the church started ordaining women as pastors? What has happened within church history for the past 1,975 years per se? Well, I'm not an expert on the following topic, but let me just give you a brief flyby. Let me give you a brief history of feminism, the feminist movement, and American life, and how it has impacted the church. First wave feminism occurred in 1848 to around the 1920s. And first wave feminism did have a lot of positive aspects to it. In first wave feminism, you had the abolition of slavery, which is a great thing. You had the women's right to vote. You had the suffrage movement. So first wave feminism had a lot of things to appreciate about it, giving women rights that they did not have previously that our Constitution allows for, like the right to vote. First wave feminism. But here's a fact you may not know. In 1853, 1853 history witnessed Antoinette Brown. She was the first woman ordained as a pastor in the United States in South Butler, New York, 1853. Now, second wave feminism 
This was from around the 1960s to around the 1980s. This is where the feminist movement went off the rails. It focused on sexual liberation. It focused on advocating extreme abortion rights. Women were encouraged to lift off all constraints, and you had this whole sexual revolution. And, of course, the the cultural moment that happened during the second wave feminism was Roe v. Wade decision in 1973. And it was during second wave feminism that the mainline Protestant denominations began to ordain women as pastors. The Methodist Church in 1956. Now the Presbyterian Church has two versions. There's a liberal version, there's a conservative. The Presbyterian Church USA in 1964. Same thing with the Lutheran Church. There's a liberal version, there's a conservative version. But the the liberal Lutheran Church in 1970 and then the Episcopal Church in 1976 began ordaining women as pastors. Well, what happened in 1964? Another watershed moment. Addie Davis was the first woman ordained as a pastor in a Southern Baptist church in Durham, North Carolina. Now you have third wave feminism, 1990s to the present. Some people say there's maybe fourth wave feminism. Now, this is where this movement has gone totally radical. Basically, third wave feminism says that men are the problem. It's not about equality with men anymore. It's about getting rid of men altogether because the mere existence of a male is a threat to culture. And so any system of patriarchy, any system that talks about any type of male leadership needs to be overturned, needs to be toppled. It's basically this radicalized version of getting rid of all issues related to anything related to men leadership. You, you may have heard the term toxic masculinity and things like that. And this third wave feminism, radicalism, has been slowly creeping into the evangelical church in America. You see, what happened in the 1960s and 70s when the mainline denominations began ordaining women, what happened next? They began affirming homosexuality. Then they began affirming the ordination of gays and lesbians. And then they started affirming transgender. So it was a very quick move from ordination of women in these denominations to full-blown acceptance of homosexuality. And so third-wave feminism is impacting conservative, evangelical, Bible-believing churches to the point where if Anybody says anything about women submitting to men, about male-only leadership, we are viewed as being bigoted, intolerant, and it leads to oppression, and it needs to be rooted out. So how do we respond as a church to these cultural pressures making inroads into evangelical churches? The mainline Protestant churches have already gone that way. They're already gone. The question is Bible-believing evangelical churches. So how does it impact us as a congregation? You may say, well, Pastor Sean, why are you even addressing this topic? Why spend a whole Sunday talking about this topic? Let's just back up for a moment. There are two things that we as a church must embrace, and I hope you would agree with me. Number one, we must embrace the absolute sovereignty of God over all spheres of life, And number two, we must 
submit to the absolute authority of God's word over all areas of life. So God's sovereignty and the inerrancy of Scripture are the two foundations that function and, and undergird everything we do as a church. So why are you doing this, Pastor Sean? Because we believe in God's sovereignty and we believe in the Bible. That's why we're doing this. So do we believe that God is absolutely sovereign over all areas of life? Over how churches should function? Over the roles of men and women? Psalm 33, 8-11, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plan of his heart to all generations. We must submit to the absolute sovereignty of God over all spheres of life. And number two, the absolute authority of God's word. Whatever it teaches. 2 Timothy 3, 16-17. All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So we're going to look at our passage of scripture. I explained it last week. And I said I would get to verse 15 this morning. I'm not. But I provided an appendix at the back of the sermon manuscript that you can read. But let's just read our passage that we looked at last week as the foundation, and I'm just going to review what we came to the conclusion of last week when we went through this passage together expositionally. So let's just look at verse 11. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness and self-control. Now, what do we conclude from this passage last week? Whenever the church gathers for worship together as a church family, women are not permitted to teach men or to be in positions of spiritual authority. In other words, women cannot be pastors. And this is a timeless command. We said it was binding upon us today. It wasn't just for Paul's day. It wasn't just for back in the day. It's something that God has ordered for us because it's ordered in creation. Adam was formed first. Eve was second. And so God determines this model for his church. And so let me just say this. And you probably already know this. Since we hold to the absolute inerrancy of Scripture and we understand this passage to forbid women from being pastors and teaching men, it puts us in the minority of most churches. And we need to understand that. We are in the minority. And sometimes it may make us look backward. It may make us look not very progressive. And we could be misunderstood by the culture. We could be misunderstood by other churches, misunderstood by other Christians who have chosen to interpret this passage differently. And so this controversy, this issue, is causing confusion and problems in our own denomination, in the Southern Baptist Convention, and not just the Southern Baptist Convention, but other like-minded, evangelical, Bible-believing churches. So we need to understand the issues, and most importantly, you need to know why we as a church believe what we believe and why we practice what we practice. And one of the ways that we do that is we understand the other side. 
So what does the other side believe about this? Now, I'm not addressing the mainline denominations that have gone full-blown liberal. I'm talking about conservative evangelical churches that may understand this differently than we do. What are their arguments? What are the arguments, what are the viewpoints of those that would argue against the traditional view that women cannot be pastors, women cannot teach men? What are those alternative views? So I'm going to address six of the main arguments this morning. Now, there's a whole lot more. That's why we have that resource out there on the table, 50 questions. I can't address 50 questions in one sermon. I've distilled it down to six, and six is probably too much. So hang on, and I'll do the best I can. The first one's the most difficult, the most insidious, and probably the most theological. And I'm going to spend a little bit of time explaining it. So here's argument number one. The New Testament was heading in the right direction on some issues, but never quite reached its ideal moral standard as we have in today's modern evolved culture. If you want a name for this, this is called the trajectory movement. The trajectory. It was popularized by a man named William Webb. What the trajectory hermeneutic or the trajectory movement says is that back in the day it was good. Those were good precepts back in Paul's day. It was moving towards something greater. These things that happened back in Paul's day were merely points along history moving us on a trajectory to a greater ethic. And so today, we're moving beyond back then, and we have a better understanding of women. We have a better understanding of homosexuality. We have a better understanding of transgender. And so because we have a better understanding today, we're on this trajectory of moving towards a better ethic of understanding. But back then, it wasn't complete. It was moving in the right direction. Paul was right for his time period, but he didn't quite make it. Now, do you see the danger of this? If back then was just one stage in moving us forward, how do you ever know when you've gotten to the point where you're supposed to get? And who determines that point? And what do you choose to believe and what do you choose not to believe? And who chooses it? What part of the Bible do you pick and choose? What part of the Bible do you want to believe? Do you just pick and choose? Which parts does, is there any authority to the Scripture? So if Scripture is constantly evolving or changing or or that we're on this trajectory, how do you know you've ever reached it? In other words, what they're saying is that what happened, this Scripture is not a fixed reality. This is not a fixed authority. It was good for its time, and it's moving us forward, but we've, we've evolved today, and we understand better. We don't want to be stuck, they would say, in concrete, frozen in time particulars. And here's what's very dangerous. You're going to start hearing this, and you've probably already heard it. They will use the Holy Spirit as the reason. They'll say, we need to be open to what the Spirit's saying. The Spirit's moving. The Spirit's leading us on this trajectory. We've got to be open to the Spirit. You don't want to, be, you don't want to stifle the Spirit, do you? The Spirit's moving, and we've got to obey where the Spirit's moving. Let me ask you a question. Will the Spirit ever move us in a direction contrary to His written word? No. So even if people are saying the Spirit's leading us, we need to be very careful. Yes, we want to be open to the Holy Spirit. Amen. Yes, but when they say the Holy Spirit's moving us to abandon Scripture, we have to say, hold time out. The Holy Spirit's not going to lead us to anything different than the written Word. So that's number one is this. It's a trajectory, 
moving us in the right direction. We're not quite there yet, and we'll eventually get there. That's probably the most complicated, the most theological, and the most dangerous because it undermines the authority of Scripture. Now, let's address the more popular ones, the more practical ones. And I said in the town hall meeting earlier, wait for my sermon. And here it is. So, argument number two. When Paul spoke of the office of pastor, he only meant senior or lead pastor. Therefore, a woman can serve as an associate pastor and teach men just as long as she doesn't serve as a senior pastor. Okay. The Bible knows nothing of a senior pastor or an associate pastor or a youth pastor or a children's pastor or an executive pastor or a missions pastor or a discipleship pastor. Those are terminologies that we've added as identifiers really in the modern day and they really come out of the megachurch model when you have a multiple staff. The Bible knows of one office called pastor slash elder. Not a senior elder or a junior elder or an associate pastor. Or, I mean, we have those titles today, but the office of the Bible is that of a pastor. Now, Paul, when he gathered the elders at Ephesus, who were this church he's talking to in 1 Timothy, many years before Timothy became pastor, in the book of Acts, chapter 20, he gathers them and he gives his final address to them. And I want you to notice what he calls the pastor slash elders of the church in Ephesus, Acts twenty seventeen. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him, the elders. And then notice later on when he calls these same men in Acts twenty twenty six, Pay careful attention to yourself and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care or to pastor the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Paul uses three interchangeable words to talk about the one office. So when we talk about a pastor, we're talking about an elder, we're talking about an overseer, we're talking about a bishop, we're talking about a shepherd. It's all the same thing. A pastor is an elder, an elder is a pastor, a pastor is a bishop, a bishop is a pastor, a pastor is an overseer, an overseer is a pastor, an elder is an elder. You understand what I'm saying? It's all the one office. Okay, so there is an elder slash pastor. So let's just cut through the confusion. I'm Pastor Sean. But our elders are also pastors because their elders are pastors. So you could say Pastor Russell, Pastor Glenn, Pastor Mickey, Pastor Dustin, Pastor Dwayne, or you can call us all elder, Elder Sean, Elder. It's all the same thing. There are only two offices in the New Testament, that of a pastor and that of a deacon. And we'll talk about that in the next coming weeks. So there are no junior elders, there's no senior elders, there's no senior pastors. And so what the argument you're hearing today is this. As long as the senior pastor is a male, the rest of the pastoral staff can be female. But you can't do that because it's dividing up one office of the Bible that calls a pastor a pastor. And the office of pastor, whether it's the senior pastor or the associate pastor or an elder, it's limited to men only. So you're, you'll hear this. You'll hear a lot of arguments from the Southern Baptist people that are pushing this, that senior pastors can be male, but all the rest of the pastoral staff can be female because she's not serving as the senior pastor. The Bible knows no delineation like that. It's a modern convention, those titles. Okay, here's argument number three. There are rare occasions. There are those anomalies 
When a woman can preach on the Lord's Day to the entire congregation, as long as she has the elders, whatever word you want to use it, approval, permission, covering. So a woman can be a pastor, a woman can preach, she can do those on rare occasions as long as the elders give her permission to. Let me ask you a question. What would you think if the elders gave somebody permission to do something sinful? It would still be sinful, right? Just because elders give somebody permission to do something doesn't necessarily mean that it's actually the right thing to do. We would not want in any other area of Scripture for the elders to give permission or covering or their blessing for somebody to sin. So look very carefully at at, at verse 12. We talked about this last week. There are no qualifications. There are no delineations. There's no extra things imported in there. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Notice what it does not say. It does not say a woman may not teach unless she's under the authority of the elders or given by permission from the elders. That condition's not in the text. So we need to take this at face value. Remember what I said last week. This is not just office language, but functional language, okay? Activity. A woman can't have the office of a pastor, noun. But she also cannot have the function verb of teaching men. That's just what Paul says. So no matter how much the elders may want to bless a woman by giving her permission or blessing to do that, they would be clearly violating God's word and leading her to sin. We would not affirm the right of the elders to give permission or delegate authority to a church member to quarrel. You can quarrel as long as you're under the authority of the elders. You can commit adultery as long as you've got the elders' blessing. We we don't do things like that, do we? Why is it here with this whole issue of women being pastors do we create a carve-out just for this one passage? It's okay as long as she's under the permission of the elders. Well, what if the elders are permitting her to do something that the Bible prohibits as sinful? So no matter how sincere the elders may want to be to empower women or to recognize the gifting of women by allowing her to preach or to be a pastor, they're actually leading her into sin and disobeying what the Bible says. And some have said, well, we should just allow it on rare occasions. Let's just, rare occasions. And so what you've seen recently for the past three or four years, especially in Southern Baptist churches, is on Mother's Day, they let the woman preach on Mother's Day. It's usually the pastor's wife. She can preach on Mother's Day. And I have a pastor friend that did this a few years ago, and here's what he told me. He said his reasoning for having a woman preach on Sunday was, over half my congregation is women, And they need to hear a woman's perspective because she brings a different interpretation of the Bible than I do. Now, this is very, very popular in progressive Christianity movement. You are starting to hear things called, I'm not going to give you the big word. If if you want to know the big word for it, it's called standpoint hermeneutics. I'm sure you're not going to remember it. Herman who and why did he neuter somebody? It's like, what's going on here? What you're hearing today is that there are multiple interpretations of a Bible passage depending on your background. So let me give you an example. These people will say an African-American lesbian will come to a different interpretation than a white heterosexual male will. 
So there's different interpretations of a biblical text. There's the white male version, there's the black version, there's the lesbian, there's the gay, there's the Hispanic, there's, there's the disabled, there's the transgender. There's all these different interpretations. And the one interpretation that you've got to marginalize because they're the oppressor class is anytime a white heterosexual male stands up to preach, silence him because he's automatically an oppressor. We're not going to listen to his interpretation. The, the traditional historical oppressed class, we've got to elevate those to have their voice being heard. So here's the fundamental problem with this approach. It assumes that the Bible has multiple interpretations instead of one fixed meaning. So even if you do allow a woman to preach from time to time or serve as a pastor or whatever, number one, it's confusing it's confusing to your church if you do it ever so often because then, like, if I only do it on Mother's Day, why don't I do it other days? But then it slowly becomes embedded into the culture of your church. So it's confusing. All right, argument number four. And this is where you see this one a lot. God calls and gifts women to preach in the local church, and we have biblical examples of women doing so. So here's the argument that you hear. God calls a woman to be a pastor. And if God calls a woman to be a pastor, we should not stand in the way of God's work in her life and let her fulfill her calling as a pastor. Sounds good, doesn't it? But here's the assumption. Does God call women to be pastors? No. What a woman may perceive as a calling on her life is not to pastoral ministry, but maybe to another ministry in the life of the church. Remember what I said last week? Women can serve in tons of areas in the life of the church. Our church would not function without all the women serving. And so what may be perceived as a call to pastoral ministry may be God's calling for her to do her ministry, but not as a pastor, but in some other capacity of the church. You see, there is a difference between a spiritual gift to serve in the office of a pastor. And what they'll do is they'll point to women in the Bible. They'll say, well, you have examples of Deborah. She had authority over men. Mary Magdalene, she preached to the disciples. She had authority over men. The Great Commission gives women authority over men. You've got Priscilla, um, all these different authorities over, of, of women teaching over men. So we've got biblical examples. Why We've got biblical examples of women preaching and being in pastoral authority. Why are you being so rigid, Pastor Sean, and not allowing women to be pastors when you've got examples? Okay, let's talk about Deborah. Don't have time to go back in Judges chapter 4, but Deborah was a prophetess in Israel. She was a leader. But let me remind you of something. Judges is written in Old Testament narrative that reports what happened, not necessarily what should happen. And it was one of the darkest days of Israel's history when the men were abdicating their leadership. There was a vacuum in leadership, and Deborah had to step in the gap because Barak and the men weren't stepping up to the plate. You don't build a theology of women pastors from the example of Deborah. You build your theology of women pastors from 1 Timothy, where he specifically teaches what we should be doing. Okay, what about Mary Magdalene? Didn't she preach to the apostles? John 20, verse 18. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord. And then he had said these things to her. Okay. Did Mary go tell the disciples that Jesus rose from the grave? Yes. But is this authoritative preaching in a worship service where she's serving as an elder? 
No. Did Jesus ever appoint her as an apostle? When Peter stood up to preach at Pentecost, did she shove him aside and said, let me share the preaching responsibilities with you, Peter? Did, did, did Mary Magdalene do that? No. Now, this is a great biblical example of how God used women to announce the resurrection, and it glorifies women, and it, and it elevates women, and they have a wonderful place in sharing the gospel, but you can't make the leap to because Mary Magdalene was basically announcing the resurrection that therefore you can have women pastors. Well, what about the Great Commission? This is what Rick Warren is arguing, that the Great Commission to go make disciples of all the nations, this gives both men and women power, authority, to ordain women as pastors. Now, we talked about this earlier during the town hall meeting, but let's ask it again. Should women make disciples? Yes. Should women be involved in discipling others and teaching others and being involved in um, seeing others grow in the faith? Yes. Should they be involved in missions and ministries? Yes. But can you make the leap to saying that the Great Commission, therefore, approves of ordaining women? That's a huge leap that you cannot make. Well, what about Priscilla, who took Apollos aside and corrected his, his theology in Acts 18.26? So Apollos was this great preacher, this great speaker. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Some people would say, well, there you go. Priscilla was a woman that had authority over man. She corrected Apollos' theology. Notice the passage very carefully. They took him aside. She and her husband corrected his theology together. We never see Priscilla recognized as an apostle or elder in the early church, and never did she preach to the entire congregation. Now, it was right for Priscilla and her husband to do this privately to correct a pastor's theology. Remember I said that last week. Women, you have every right to judge my theology, to correct me. There's nothing wrong with that. But that is not an example to take the leap to say, okay, we can ordain women. So that's argument number four. Here's argument number five. The traditional conservative view automatically, that's the key word, automatically leads to patriarchal hierarchies and sexual abuse. So we need to be free of any misogyny, any chauvinism, any type of male headship in the house, male headship in the church. That automatically leads to abuse. Now let me just say this. Abuse of any kind, sexual abuse, physical abuse, spousal abuse, any type of abuse is egregious, is sinful, needs to be denounced, needs to be dealt with, needs to be handled. You should never tolerate any type of abuse in homes or in churches. So abuse is terrible. However, the reality of male-only leadership does not automatically cause and effect lead to abuse. You can't just automatically say, because you have this theology, it's going to automatically lead to abuse. Now, do abuses exist in churches? Yes. Does misogyny exist in churches? Are there pastors who are jerks? Are there pastors who are chauvinists? Yes. Are there examples of, of, a, of a misunderstanding or a misapplication of this whole issue? Yes. So this theology may lead to abuse, but it doesn't automatically lead to abuse. But the standard is still the same. You cannot throw out a doctrine because of what you think it automatically may lead to. The teaching is very clear. Men, we are to be the spiritual leaders of our home. We are to be the spiritual leaders of the church. You can't throw out the clear teaching of the text to say, well, if you go that way, it's going to lead to toxic masculinity and it's going to lead to abuse. It may, 
but it may not. But you can't get rid of the theology in fear of what it may lead to. So here's a faithful biblical standard. A faithful biblical standard would say, let's, let's uphold two things. Abuse is sinful and wrong, and we need to address it. Any type of chauvinism or, or any type of abuse, we need to, to denounce it and deal with it. At the same time, we need to uphold what the Scripture says about the roles of men and women. We can hold these two things together in tandem. One doesn't automatically lead to the other. And here's argument sixth. You often hear this. This is a second-tier issue. This is a secondary issue within Southern Baptist life. It, this shouldn't cause division. This, should, this, this shouldn't prohibit cooperation. We really need to widen the tent. We need to widen the tent. Okay, I will be the first to stand up that any church has the right to do what any church wants to do. But when it comes to pooling our dollars and our resources and partnering together, that's a whole different conversation. Because now we're sharing resources, we're sharing dollars, we're sharing ministry theology. So we have to ask the question, as Southern Baptists, are we going to be unified on the dogma? Yes, we should be unified on the, the absolute essentials of the truth. But even as Southern Baptists, we should be unified on the secondary issues. Let me ask you a question. Whether you're Southern Baptist or not, you're, and the fact that you're at a Baptist church baptism is a secondary issue right some churches sprinkle we dunk but what makes us baptist dunking that's a secondary issue that's important to us what about eternal security some churches don't believe that they believe you can lose your salvation but and that's a secondary issue but we want to partner with churches that believe in eternal security so those secondary issues are what bind us together to pool our resources to do things together it's what distinguishes us from being presbyterian or assembly of god or methodist or a non-denominational bible church so let me ask the question baptism is a secondary issue eternal security is a secondary issue End times is probably a secondary issue. Are those things important? Yes. Is women in ministry a secondary issue? Yes. But does that mean it's not important? The money that our church sends to the SBC trains seminary students, plants churches, and sends missionaries to unreached people groups around the world. And I would assume as faithful givers to this church, do you want your money being sent to other entities who affirm things differently than what we do as a church. You want to be assured that if you're sending your money along, it's being stewarded towards the things that we wholeheartedly agree with. Why would you send your money along if it's in violation of that? So here's the bottom line. When you begin to compromise on biblical truth, your church begins to look more and more like the world. And we don't want our church to look like the world. We want it to look like God's plan, the pillar and buttress of truth. Wayne Grudem, one of the leading voices in this movement of promoting the traditional view, he met privately with one of the leaders of the Southern Baptist Convention who back in the 70s and 80s and 90s was one of the key leaders to moving the denomination back to its conservative uh, roots because back during that time, it was moving liberal. And he had a conversation with this man. And this is what he said. This, this man said this, and I think this is what you're hearing today. This is what I'm personally experiencing from other pastors. Quote, 
And this is from a book that Wayne Grudem shared this in. He says, our biggest problem in this struggle was not the moderates or the liberals who opposed us. That wasn't our problem. Our biggest problem, listen to this, was the conservatives who agreed with us and refused to say anything or take a stand to support us. Their problem wasn't from the other side coming at them. Their problem was from people that agreed with them but wouldn't stand with them. I've been alone in those times where I've stood up at an annual meeting and presented the view and nobody stood with me and in the hallway afterwards, we agree with you. We're on your side. Well, it would have been nice if you would have stood up in the room and and helped me. One of the best statements I've heard on this issue of verse 12 comes from the great Martin Lloyd-Jones. It's a long quote, but man, when I came across this a few years ago, um, I saved it and um, I pulled it up today because I think it just distills everything we've been talking about. He says this, In many ways, the root trouble even among good evangelicals is our failure to heed the plain teachings of Scripture. Paul does not say that it was only for the time being. He takes it right back to the fall and shows that it is an abiding principle. If it is something that is true, therefore of the age in which we live. But thus, you see, we argue with Scripture. Instead of taking its plain teaching, we say the times have changed. When it suits our thesis, we want to say it's no longer relevant. Then here's the quote that stuck with me. If you want to avoid terrible disillusionment on the day of judgment, face Scripture as it is. Do not argue with it. Do not try to manipulate it. Do not twist. Face it. Receive it. And submit to it, whatever the cost. That's tremendous wisdom. We should never argue with Scripture. We should never try to manipulate it or twist it to fit what we want it to say. So as faithful Christians, we should receive the Bible at face value and submit to it, whatever the cost. That's easy to say. Whatever the cost, we're going to submit to it. Well, what's, what's the cost? The fear of being labeled legalistic fundamentalists? Do we fear the cost of being called bigots or misogynists? Do we fear the cost of the social justice activists coming in and taking over the church? I mean, what do we fear? Do we fear the cost of disobeying God on this issue, of not submitting to His Word? Because Lloyd-Jones says there's a day of judgment. There's going ter- to be great disillusionment on the day of judgment if you've argued with the Word of God and you've twisted it. So as elders, I don't know if you know this, but Hebrews tells us as elders, we are going to stand before God on the day of judgment and give an account of how we led this church. That's serious. We're not going to stand before social media. We're not going to stand before the pundits. We're not going to stand before the elite. We're going to stand before a holy God and give an account of how we led this church. Have we led this church to biblical faithfulness no matter the cost? You know what? Jesus gave this warning to the religious leaders of his day. 
In John 12, 43, Jesus said this, For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Do we seek the glory of God above all? Or do we seek the praise of men? Do we desire to obey the totality of Scripture or will we compromise because it's way easier? Do we live in light of God's absolute sovereignty or do we make up our own rules as we go along? Will we be the church that God has intended for us to be or will we chart our own course? So I'm calling us to faithfully submit to the Scriptures no matter what the cost, for the glory of God. So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning as we go into a time of prayer. Maybe a lot of confusion in this room. Just because this topic is a little difficult to grasp, all the nuances, and Lord, I, I hope I've done my best to give at least an overview of what, what we're dealing with. But ultimately, Lord, we could lose the force for the trees. And the bottom line is, will we submit to your scripture? If it says it, it doesn't matter how we feel about it. It doesn't matter what we want it to say. It's your authoritative word and we must submit, no matter the cost. Lord, help us to count the cost of what it means to be a Bible-believing church. Help us to count the cost to know what it's going to mean to stand up for truth in a culture that waffles on the truth every day. This is where we need your grace, Lord Jesus. Holy Spirit, this is where we need your power. We can't face this on our own. We can't be the church. We can't be the men, the women, the boys and girls. We can't be the, the family of God you've called us to be without the power of the Holy Spirit, without the glory of the risen Savior. So we need you, Jesus, to encourage us, to support us, to guide us, to strengthen us through your Spirit. Lord, help us to stand strong. Help us to remain true to your word. Lord, I pray for our congregation that we would be the pillar and buttress of the truth. Lord, help us to be kind. Help us to be loving. Help us to be compassionate. But Lord, help us to be strong. Help us to not waver. Help us to walk that balance between speaking the truth and love. Because ultimately, we're going to face you on the day of judgment. And what we want to hear is well done, good and faithful servant. May we do all things for your glory, Lord because you're worthy of all of our praise and adoration and our allegiance. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.